going to continue on with our study in 1 Peter, and I've entitled the message tonight, Chosen, Royal, Holy, Peculiar, or if you prefer, Special. Chosen, Royal, Holy, Peculiar. And we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 through 17. Last week, uh, we noted the wonderful imagery that Peter uh, likes to use here and has been using to get across his teaching to the readers of this epistle. Uh, He continued this analogy of the new birth uh, from chapter 1 with an exhortation to lay aside. Remember, we talked about those terms of laying aside and putting on. Laying aside sinful habits of our old life and as newborn babes desiring the sincere milk of the word. That's back in verse 2 of chapter 2. You know, if we're truly the Lord's, we should desire, we should desire to grow in the knowledge of him, and indeed we should hunger and thirst after him and not be satisfied with just a little taste of him. Now, as I was studying this, I was thinking a practical example. For instance, we have a lot of couples here. When you first met your spouse and made plans for marriage, let's say, or were thinking towards that line, I'm sure you didn't, weren't satisfied with just knowing a minimum about them. You wanted to know all about them, right? You wanted to know all about their habits, their desires, their family, likes and dislikes. Well, when you've, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you can look back on when you came to faith in Christ, would you be satisfied with knowing just what you knew back then? Or would you desire to know more about him, know more about what he's done for you, know about, more about his attributes, his characters, his works, all things regarding to Christ? So as you, as a couple, for instance, uh, grow and grow in knowledge, and are growing in knowledge of one another as you go forward in life. So, as a Christian, we should hunger and thirst after Christ to know more about Him than just a, just the taste, just the beginning, just the oh, Christ saved me 20, 30, 40 years ago. No, I want to know more about Him. I want to be as, as close a relationship with Him as I can. So that's what Peter's trying to encourage us to do here: to have a closer relationship with Christ, to not be satisfied with just that initial taste, but to have a hunger and thirst after Him that cannot be satisfied. We continue to learn more of him until we see him face to face. So Peter then moved from that uh, newborn babe type uh, situation and tasting Christ to the image of a building. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone, as we learn. He's the foundation stone of the church of the living God. And we are built upon him into a spiritual temple, Peter taught. In fact, he is the living stone, just as he's the living bread. Uh, He's the living water. And he was the living way. All those verses we looked at in Scripture. He's the fountain of life to us. And only by a connection to him, by faith, can we be the lively stones that Peter talks about uh, instead of dead in our trespasses and sins. So keep that in mind. He is all to us, living stone, living bread, living water, living way. And so we should be living in him and be uh, as, as lively as we can be, which means connected to him in our life. He was and is precious to the Father, as Peter described to us, as an obedient son, and he is precious to us as our Lord and Savior. That term is important to us as well. In fact, I think we noted in Psalm 72, verse 14, and also in Psalm 116, verse 15, that we are precious, actually we are precious in the sight of our Heavenly Father. We're precious to him. We as a holy priesthood, Peter said, are to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God, Not based upon our merits, but that of the Lord Jesus Christ on his merits. That's who we offered up sacrifices, whose basis we offer them up on. And those spiritual sacrifices include offering up our bodies for service, as Paul says in Romans 12.1, offering our money for his use in blessing other saints, 
uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 18, offering our prayers and our praise to him, uh, Hebrews 13, 15. These are all these spiritual sacrifices we offer up. As part of this spiritual temple that we are, the body of Christ, we are to do all that we can do in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the power of his spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.20 tells us, For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We have been purchased. We are his. Therefore glorify him in our body and in our spirit. We also noted last time that Peter quoted from three Old Testament passages to show us not only the preciousness of the surety of our foundation in Christ, the chief cornerstone of God's spiritual temple, but also the judgment of God on those who are not in Christ. So he was drawing a contrast there. As we quoted from John MacArthur, uh, those who stumble over Christ, quote, were not appointed by God to disobedience and unbelief, but rather they were appointed to doom because of their disobedience and unbelief. And as we know from both the testimony of Scripture in Romans 3.23 and personal experience, all mankind deserves the wrath of God for their sin. And it is God alone who chooses to save some via the sacrifice of his Son as a substitute for sinners. And we know that's the case. Or who appoints the rest to eternal damnation as just punishment for their sins, as we're told in Romans 9.22. So as we move on in the study of 1 Peter, we're going to look... Um, at the second of Peter's three main uh, themes in this book, which is, if you recall, we started our study, we stated that Peter was covering three themes, major themes in this letter, and uh, to these saints who were scattered abroad here in Asia Minor. First was salvation, salvation of the believer and how precious it is. The second is the uh, submission of the believer, <clears throat> excuse me, to those who are in authority over us, which includes, among other things, the marriage relationship as well as all of life. And the third was the suffering of the believers. So we had salvation, submission, and suffering. And in that suffering, we're shown how to conduct ourselves as a believer in that suffering. So we're going to begin uh, to see what he says concerning our submission as believers, especially when we look at verses 13 through 17 today. So may the Lord guide us by his spirit as we look into this and see what he wants us to do to learn this lesson of submission. So the first thing we want to look at this, this evening uh, is what I'll call chosen to show forth praise. Chosen to show forth praise, and that's verses 9 and 10. So Peter sets before us now this contrast between what we are in Christ, what we are now in Christ, and what we once were. So let's read verses 9 and 10 of First Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. I think King James reads peculiar people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. <clears throat> so we note here the multiple descriptive titles and privileges that are ours in Christ in this first part of verse 9 here. Peter, of course, was a Jew. Uh, he was a Jew, and he was speaking here of the church, but he's speaking of the church, even though he was a Jew, the body of Christ, which includes Jews and Gentiles. But what a glorious riches are ours as God's chosen people. We have all these, these attributes given to us. We're chosen, we're royal, we're holy. We'll look at each of those in a little bit. The Greek word translated people, by the way, here, or generation in some Bibles, carries with it the idea of kinfolk or of, of family. Through Jesus Christ, we call God our Father, and we are part of his family, for we have been, what, born again into it. Okay, And these are his people. 
It's important, notice he says, but you. Who's the you he's talking about? And I've told you before, this is important to get the context. But you are a chosen generation. Who's the you? If you go back to the very beginning of chapter 1, he defines who the you is. It's all these people in Asia Minor who are what? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So he's talking to Christians here. He's talking about all the elect that are in this region of Asia Minor. So when we see that, make sure you remember the context. Who's he talking to? Therefore, we get an idea of what the response should be. If he's talking to unbelievers, obviously it would be a different angle. But in this case, he's talking to believers. But you are the chosen generation. He calls us the royal priesthood. So we're chosen, we're chosen, we're elect, but he calls us a royal priesthood. In fact, in verse 5, if you look back there, you'd see that he referred to us believers as a holy priesthood, which obviously connects with his command uh, to be holy as God is holy in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. So we're to be holy as he is holy, fleeing from sin, laying aside our sinful habits. Now, though, he uses this adjective royal, we're royal. This concept is taken from Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, where God speaks of his people being a kingdom of priests to him. We're united to Christ, who is prophet, priest, and king to his people, and we shall rule one day with him. There's a marvelous thing that we, sinners that we are, saved by God's grace, shall one day rule with him. But now as priests, we are to offer up praises to God and declare his message of salvation to all. We are to offer up praises, sacrifices of praise. We are priests in a royal priesthood, following in the footsteps of our great high priest, Jesus Christ the righteous. And again, this harkens back to an Old Testament passage, which Peter may have had in mind, uh, since it was from his favorite Old Testament book, Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 6, the prophet declares, But you shall be named the priests of the Lord, and they shall call you the servants of the Lord of our God. How blessed it is to be changed from being not his people and under his wrath to now being the people of God. Not just ordinary people, but royal priests who shout forth the praises of our God. Think about that as a, as a position you're in as a believer. You're not just a, a lowly member of God's kingdom. No, you're a royal priest. You're, you're one's given to praise. You're leading the praise. You can picture those priests, especially we read in the Old Testament, who are assigned to lead the, the congregation in worship. We're all royal priests. We're all to be bringing forth praise to God. That's the distinction between us and those who are not right with God. We have the privilege of being royal priests. He goes on to describe us as a holy nation. A holy nation. This phrase he takes from Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6, where it says, For you are a holy people, to the Lord your God. We're a people set apart for service to God. Matthew Henry put it this way. He said, all Christians, wheresoever they be, compose one holy nation. They're one nation collected under one head, agreeing in the same manners and the customs and governed by the same laws. Then in Isaiah 62 and verse 12, we're told, "And and they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Now, sadly, of course, as we know, this is not as true as it should be amongst believers because many of God's people have turned away from his word as the rule of life and have sought their own desires and their own comforts and have kind of melded in with the world so that there's no distinction. And that's unfortunate. But again, he describes us here. We are to be God's own special people, or uh, I think there's uh, the terminology in the King James there is, is that we're peculiar. That word's been kind of changed over the years, but back in the early days of its use, it would refer to someone who was special, who was unique, who was set apart. 
now it's we look at we call someone peculiar we think they're kind of weird you know they have little bad weird habits or something but back then it was the same meaning as special unique okay set apart so that's what he's talking about here we're a special people we're set set apart by god to be used for his glory we've been purchased by god we've been bought with a price which is the blood blood of his own son malachi Chapter 3 and verse 17, they shall be mine, God speaking, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make up my jewels and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. We're, we're precious, we're special, we are, we're his. He calls us, you're mine. And that's a very important picture there of how, how we are God's totally. We're not just casually his, occasionally his, we're his now. He has bought us with a price. He owns us. And we, he deserves our praise. You also might want to look at a couple other passages. I didn't write them down this time, but Isaiah 43, 21, and Titus 2, 14. So what is the task of these people that are so blessed by God? It is what? It says here in our text, to declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're to declare his praises. We're to be unashamedly exalting him before the eyes and ears and hearts of people. John MacArthur states this, he says, the word proclaim here, which is the Greek exegelo, is an unusual word. It's found only here in the New Testament, and it means to publish or to celebrate something, to publish abroad the glory of God, to celebrate who he is, and of course what we are in Christ. We're to publish abroad his praises. Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. So we are to celebrate our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And we give thanks for his mercy he has shown to us as sinners. And uh, Ephesians 3.21, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Never ending. He deserves our never ending praises. We should never grow weary of praising God. And we won't, of course, for all eternity. But even now, we should never grow weary of praising him. Even in the midst of trials and troubles and difficulties, persecutions even, we should never grow weary of praising him for who he is and what he has done for us in Christ. Peter emphasizes the radical change in our lives here in verse 10 as he contrasts what we were outside of the mercy of God with what we are now and that we are the objects of his mercy. In fact, he's indirectly quoting here what Paul specifically quotes in, uh, from the prophet Hosea in Romans chapter 9, Verses 25 and 26, Paul says this, And as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. Actually, in the, uh, the, the original text in Hosea chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, the message applies to Israel. The, the prophet there is speaking to Israel. But Paul quotes it in Romans 9, he was applying it to Gentiles. So here, Peter is applying it to both Jew and Gentile believers in Asia Minor. The same thing is true of you. God has called you. They are, you are his people. Once you were not, but now you're his people. Therefore, you should praise him. We've done nothing, nothing that would merit the mercy and grace of God, yet he has poured it out abundantly upon us through Christ Jesus, as we all know, by the power of his Holy Spirit. And we know Titus 3.5, not, not because of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. It's all about his mercy. All the credit goes to him for our salvation. But according to his mercy, he has saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. 
So that's the first two verses, and it's important we see that contrast, as well as all the, the, I guess you can call them not just titles, but responsibilities he's given to us. We're chosen, we're royal, we're holy. That means we should live as chosen, royal, and holy people. We should be distinctively his, not blending in with society. Let's move on now, though, to another uh, precious thought that Peter gives to us here, and that's uh, verses 11 and 12. Dearly beloved pilgrims, your dearly beloved pilgrims. So once again, he follows this bold statement, which he describes what we are in Christ, regarding our privileges in Christ. And he tries to beseech his readers and us here to live in accordance with those privileges. Let's read verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts, which, are, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. <clears throat> Peter uses an endearing term here, both to let the recipients know uh, of, of God and also uh, know of God and of his love for them and to exhort them to respond to that love. Notice the term here. He says, Dear beloved. And notice he doesn't just say, hey, I've got a great idea. Why don't, you, why don't you talk about this or think about it or maybe consider it? No, he says, I beg you. Beloved, I beg you to do this. I beg you as sojourners, as pilgrims, to abstain from fleshly lust, to be distinctively gods, to, to lay aside those sins which so easily beset us. That's the picture here. He's, he's saying, you're beloved of God, so live as one beloved of God. Show yourself to be truly loved by him and that you love him. He's in, I think it was uh, one author, I don't have his, his name here before me, but he said, in other words, the term comes with a sense of, uh, conveys a sense of obligation. We have an obligation to God. Paul made a very similar appeal in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, where he said this, We then, as workers together with him, God, beseech you that you also receive not the grace of God in vain. So the apostles here are not just throwing out ideas and saying, hey, here's a you know, sampling of things you could do. No, they're begging, they're beseeching, they're trying to imply to us the importance of this life of holiness, the importance of this life of distinctively being God's. And that's something we should take to heart and not take it as a casual, well, take it or leave it kind of thing. Peter reminds them that they, like we also who are in Christ, are just passing through this world. You're a pilgrim. You're not an ultimately a citizen of earth. You are a citizen of heaven. We are pilgrims on the way to our eternal home, and we are citizens of heaven. That should be our first priority when we think about how to live our life. As citizens of heaven, we should conduct ourselves according. We are to live according to the laws of our homeland. Our homeland is heaven. We should live according to those laws. Psalm 119, verse 54, Thy statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. We are in the house of a pilgrimage. We are going through this world as pilgrims. We're not permanent citizens here of earth. We are permanent citizens of heaven. And as a pilgrim going through the land, we're to conduct ourselves in a way that honors the one to whom we are loyal to, the one whom we serve, which is God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. We're to be loyal to them. So people can see us as we wander through this world, as we interact in this world. People can see a distinction in us, that we're not of this world. We're different. We're loyal to a higher power. We're loyal to God. And we should distinguish ourselves by our conduct. That's what Peter's talking about here. <clears throat> God's word. Is God's word the basis of our life's decisions and thoughts? Are we seeking to please him or are we seeking to please the world? 
So Peter doesn't suggest here that believers who read his epistles should isolate themselves from the world. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't say withdraw. Uh, he says no, but rather abstain or from or be separated from the fleshly lusts which wage war against our souls. We're not passive pilgrims on a picnic to the promised land. Okay, wouldn't that make a great story? It sounds like it makes a great story. Passive pilgrims on a, on a picnic to the promised land. No, but we're what? We're warriors. We're warriors fighting against the snares of Satan and the evil desires of our own flesh. Uh, desire in and of itself is not a wrong thing. Uh, for we might certainly have holy desires, spirit-led desires, to serve God. But desires can lead to evil, as James said in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away drawn away from the truth by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, what are your desires? How do we resist sinful desires? Well, as warriors for God, we must put on our armor, Ephesians 6.13, and not take up, and, and, and take up, I'm sorry, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which is Ephesians 6.17, in fact, turn with me to another kind of help in this, Paul's admonition in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 16 through 26. So it's a lengthy text, but I think it would be worth reading the whole thing. And this is an exhortation by Paul to have us walking in the Spirit to be distinctive pilgrims, uniquely different from the world. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. Uh, we'll go to the end of the chapter. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. People practicing these things cannot claim to be, notice the word practice, people practicing these things, living this kind of life, cannot claim to be children of God. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, familiar verse, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. And those who are Christ, there's the key phrase there, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So there's the great contrast that Paul says that we should be looking at and saying, once we were like that, once we did these things, but now we are not. These should be things we lay aside, we throw out, and we should be distinctively God's by the fruit that we bear. People should see us as being uniquely his. So as a result of this rejecting and resisting sinful desires, our conduct before unbelievers will be exemplary, and we will be, in a sense, a rebuke to them when they try to slander us. That's what Peter's saying back in chapter 2 and verse 12. We'll be a rebuke to them because they'll see our lives which are distinctively for God, and they'll be, they'll be ashamed to accuse us of being evil because we're living the life we should live. And it's important because this is going to lead into the latter part of the, cha of the chapter here, or at least in our, our verse 17, uh, when we're talking about how we should conduct ourselves in submission to authority and what the purpose of our life is and how we're to reflect that. So keep that in mind. 
The Greek word here for behold, by the way, in verse 12, when they behold uh, your good works, uh, which they observe or behold, uh, the Greek word here is an idea of careful watching over time. They're watching us, they're observing us, they're interacting with us. And they see over time, in other words, our good works or conduct should be a continual pattern that they can observe. We're not perfect, not a once in a while special event though, that we only, we're good on one day and then the rest of the, day, rest of the days we're not. But a continual pattern of righteousness and godliness, a continual pattern of laying aside the sins of the flesh, a continual pattern of pursuing holiness, of being a holy, godly, um, just person before people. That's the idea we want to have here. And as they observe that, Paul say, or Peter's saying, then they'll see a distinction in our life. They won't be able to accuse us of being evil. As God's warriors in his army of saints, we must conduct ourselves as Christian gentlemen and ladies, not savage mercenaries. We're not mercenaries serving God. We're soldiers, and we're to conduct ourselves in a way that honors God and shows his glory. And yes, we stand up against sin, and sometimes we have to be firm in standing against sin. But still, we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We are to live simple lives, humble lives, yet bold, obedient lives to the Lord, that we, like Job or Daniel or Paul and many others, may be both a blessing and a rebuke to those around us. You know, we're going to be a blessing to some by our life, our conduct, and a rebuke to some. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. Paul is saying that with an example. This is how he conducted himself. This is how you should conduct yourselves. We also see the consequences here of such life. It is, is it to glorify ourselves or to appear Pious in the eyes of men? No, it's to glorify God. What's our purpose here on earth? The old Baptist catechism, as you may know, answers it clearly. What's the chief end of man? To glorify ourselves? No, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The latter part of verse 12 here may be interpreted on the day he visits us. On the day he visits us. Glorify God in the day of visitation, which can mean both the day of judgment Uh, when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, as we're told in Philippians chapter 2. Or it could mean the day when God in his grace visits unbelievers with his salvation because obviously he is still bringing people to himself. So when it says the day of visitation, it can mean the last day of judgment or it can mean the day of visitation when God visits a sinner and brings them to himself. Romans 59 rejects uh, reflects, I'm sorry, rejects, reflects this when Paul says, and that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, for this cause I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So let's pray for the grace uh, of God to live for God, even in the midst of mocking, that we might be a consistent witness by our lives and by our words to, to the lost of the amazing grace of God. We might be that light to them. Okay, let's move on now to our last section, which we'll look at tonight, which is submitting for the Lord's sake. And again, remember that this conduct that is hopefully reflecting upon those around us is going to also be involved here in our submitting to authority. And we'll call this submitting for the Lord's sake, verses 13 through 17. We come to the second major theme now. This is what I said. We're rolling into the second major theme of Peter's epistle, which is that of submission. And in this case, it's submission to lawful authority. Notice those two words, lawful authority. Let's read verses 13 through 17. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man 
for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You know, it's important to look carefully at the words used here in verses 13 and 14, unless we kind of twist them to suit our own purposes. First of all, Peter uses the Greek word hupotasso, which means to subordinate, to be under obedience or be subject to or submit oneself to something. It appears six times in 1 Peter. Uh, So there's no question that he's telling us to submit to something. Okay, that's the whole purpose here. It's submission. Secondly, our submission is to, be, is to be very broad to every ordinance of man. Literally, the word ordinance here means formation or building in a physical sense, or every authority instituted by men. So clearly, this extends to all civil power. We should note here that God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. Okay? So he has established order. So listen to me carefully here, beloved, and this is tricky, uh, but as the Puritan Robert Layton said, tyranny is better than anarchy. Tyranny is better than anarchy. Keep that in mind. Think about that. When God judged the world in Noah's time, what was the general description of mankind's sin? Genesis 5, uh, 6, 5, and 6 tells us that, us that violence or lawlessness filled the earth and man's heart was corrupt and full of evil. And what was the condemnation of Israel before God gave them a king? Judges 17.6. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did what was right in his own eyes. Was that a good thing? No. That's what we call anarchy. Every man doing what's right in his own eyes. The key phrase here in verse 13 is what? For the Lord's sake. Submit to yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. God is the one who institutes both order and authority structure in his creation, and therefore we are to submit for his name's sake. Turn to Paul's classic argument for this, as you may know, in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. And note here in the very beginning, the defining words of verse 1 as we read them, Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for if he does not bear the, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers, attending continually to do this very thing. Render, therefore, to all who are due taxes, to whom taxes are due, customs, to whom customs, fear, to whom fear, honor, to whom honor. Note the defining words there in verse 1. For there is no power, there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Therefore, Peter is saying we are to obey authority because it is ordained of God and not, and to disobey is in effect to disobey God. 
Now, some of us immediately are going to say, well, this doesn't mean we're to obey non-Christians or ungodly men or their decrees. Well, consider when Peter wrote this and Paul wrote Romans chapter 13, what is, what, who is Peter referring to in that text? He's referring to Nero in Rome. Not exactly a great guy. Not exactly a righteous man in any sense of the word. He's certainly not worthy of the office, yet he was appointed by God to rule at that time. Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini, Stalin, Marx, even Joe Biden are appointed by God to be where they are. Those weren't accidents. Those weren't quirks of, of, of history. They were appointed by God for his purpose, for his glory, to demonstrate his power and to humble the hearts of men in certain situations, obviously. So when we consider that, Peter mentions here also uh, governors in verse 14. In the New Testament, there were three governors that we were aware of or named at one time as governors over Judea, Pilate, Felix, and Festus. None of them were believers, and they were all appointed by the emperor. They were none of more godly men. The governor received his power from the emperor, and the emperor received his power from God. Proverbs 18, 15, 16, By me kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all the judges of the earth. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings, and he raises up kings. It's all in God's hands. So, does this mean we are to obey laws that are contrary to God's law, or to submit to rulers who decree we cannot worship the one true God? No, of course not. That's not what Peter's saying. We must note the key phrase here, for the Lord's sake. As Gordon Clark explained in his commentary, this phrase shows that secular obedience is a divine command, and at the same time, it sets its limits. If and when a state commands anything forbidden by scriptures, then the state must be disobeyed and our allegiance given to God, unquote. So Peter stated it quite clearly, actually, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 19, when he responded to the Sanhedrin's demand that the apostles should no longer teach in Jesus' name. He said, quote, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. And again, one chapter later, when threatened again, he said in Acts 5, 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. So when it goes against God's word and will, obviously we don't obey that command or that law. But otherwise, we are to submit to those who are in authority over us. As Peter says in verse 14, governors, at least in Roman time, were sent to preserve order. They didn't exactly do a great job, but they were sent to preserve order, protect those who do well, and punish evildoers. That was their job. Whether they did it well or not is not a matter of discussion. It's that God appointed that. He appointed them to be the rulers. He set up this structure of government. <clears throat> we are to respect civil government as a divine ordinance. And by being model citizens, which Peter is speaking to us, sir, rebuke those who are opposed to the gospel. Peter, make, Peter makes a, a really powerful argument here for this with the beginning phrase of verse 15. Notice verse 15, the first part of it. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence in the ignorance of foolish men. For this is the will of God. God's will is involved, so therefore we don't fight against it, but rather we submit to it. In fact, Robert Layton said, the strongest and most binding reason that can guide a Christian's mind is having God's will as his law. In fact, Ephesians 5.17 says, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. God's will is for us as a daily task for Christians to understand God's will and to do it. 
If that involves just being a good citizen and being a faithful servant of God, regardless of who's over us, then we do it and we, we shine as a light to those around us. If there's a time when the law or the rule de- declares that we cannot serve God or we cannot worship him or we have to do something contrary to his word, well, then we don't do it. We reject it. But otherwise, we're submitting to those in authority over us. So what he's telling us here in these verses is that if we desire to please God and fulfill his will, we should obey civil authority unless it directs us to oppose God's word and will. Good citizenship, good citizenship counters false charges made against Christians, and thus commends the gospel to unbelievers. So as Peter points out here in verse 16, we are indeed free. We're free in Christ from the bondage of sin, but we're not free to live any way we want. We're free to live for the glory of God. As John MacArthur put it, Christian freedom is never to be an excuse for self-indulgence or license. Let me read that again. Christian freedom is never to be an excuse for self-indulgence or license. 1 Corinthians 8 Verses 9 through 13, won't read the whole text, but it starts out by saying, But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. Genuine freedom is the freedom to serve God. A freedom that could be exercised under law and in submission to lawful authority. Paul says in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. In the same chapter, verse 13, Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Which leads us to Peter's final point in this section, verse 17. Let me read verse 17 again. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the king. He tells us to show proper respect to everyone. It's, it's kind of a general statement. and as, In fact, this general statement as, is the next, love the brotherhood. Okay? Honor all people, love the brotherhood. Both of these statements are in direct contradiction to the self-serving, self-loving attitude that is prevalent, prevalent in today's society. Honor all people, love the brotherhood. We are to be a blessing to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. We're told in Galatians 6.10. We are to honor the king by first revering God. We honor kings by revering God. Since God is the one who appoints kings, we are to bow to his authority as the supreme king. And then the king, the president, whoever is under him, is to be submitted to as well. Again, we do this because it's the will of God. Not necessarily because the ruler is worthy or someone we like. Obviously, this is difficult at times, very difficult. But let us live in the light of the truth today, beloved, and submit to all lawful authority, in other words, authority that is itself following the law for God's sake, that we should not hinder his name being glorified or his gospel being believed because our life is one of rebellion and not submitting to authority. Okay, let's bow in a word of prayer.